I'll thank Patty. We sprung that on her at the last moment uh, to direct. And, and I don't know if you noticed, she's not the same size as Donald. So I know that it's difficult to see her sometimes. But, you know, it's the music, it's the majesty and the glory of his name. Let's turn to Psalm 73 as we continue through this psalm. We're going to expand. We just did the, the first two verses last time. Uh, this week we'll expand through um, a lot of presents there. Uh, through verse nine uh, this week. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us, open our eyes through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might understand your word, see it, that it might come and, and, and dwell in the midst of us that, and change us, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, that we might understand more and more of who you are and how you call us to live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 73, verses 1 through 9, this is a psalm of Asaph. If you remember, he was one of the choir directors in the temple. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, just a, a quick review to get us back up to speed about Psalm 73. It tackles, especially in this portion, it tackles the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. And it doesn't uh, address the problem in a philosophic fashion, like, oh, you know, oh, poor me, I'm poor and I have nothing, so I must be really godly and those rich people are really ungodly because they have everything. That's not the way it comes about. It's not the way it really addresses it. It addresses it from the, the heart and experiences of this psalmist, Asaph. Um, it's, and, and it's indicative of the way that all the psalms are pretty much. They're open and honest, and they, they call us to wrestle with these things, not from afar, but as the psalmist wrestles with it. As he gets in the middle of it, and he asks God the hard questions, and he wants to know the answers. And he says, Lord, I, I don't know what you're doing, but I don't like what you're doing with me. Now, this is typically how the psalm starts, and we don't know how long this, it takes to write each psalm, but often at the end of each psalm, we get to something, if, if you just turn over to the end of Psalm 73, you'll see, this is like turning to Revelation and see, seeing what happens at the end, you know, oh, well, Christ wins at the end for sure. Well, here at the end of the uh, Psalm 73, it says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. So we see that there's a typical process that the psalmist goes through. It's the calling out to the Lord. It is the struggle with the issue. And it is this 
this coming to grips with what the Lord is doing and who he is. And typically at the end of of Psalms, we see this confirmation that, okay, Lord, I've asked you hard questions. I've wrestled with these things. I know who you are. I know what your character is, and I'm going to trust in you. Okay? Well, the psalmist, as he works through Psalm 73, he is working through his problem. Okay, this is not the Lord's problem. The prosperity of the wicked and, and the suffering of the righteous is not the problem of the Lord. It's the psalmist's problem in understanding what the Lord is doing in the midst of this. Okay? So Asaph, Asaph, who is the author of Psalm 73, has honestly told us in, in the early verses how his foot had almost slipped. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. It's as if he said, I've almost lost my faith as I look at the, the world around me and I struggle with, here, here are your promises and here is your word and here's what you say and here's what I'm seeing happen, Lord. Now it is, remember, it's his problem. It's not the Lord's problem. So he's saying, I, I, I almost got to the place where I was ready to pitch it all. I was ready to pitch it all. And he gets to the point, look at verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. Okay, envious. I, I wanted what the non-believers had. I wanted their life. I wanted their lifestyle, even to the point of I wanted their priorities because to Asaph, it seems like they're getting further ahead and I'm getting further behind. He compared their prosperity to his own place in life and he almost got to the point, almost got to the point where he thought, maybe I'm just wasting my time pursuing righteousness. Maybe... The road that the Lord has laid out for me is not the best road for me. This, this is what he almost got to that point. Remember what he was seeing and experiencing in his life and then reading in the word and knowing about God, they weren't matching up in, in his mind. In his mind, they were lining up. And as we saw last week, you, you have to trust the word. You can't always trust what your eyes see. You can't always trust what your ears hear concerning what the Lord is doing. Remember, Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. It looks good. It sounds good. might even feel good, but it is Satan disguising himself in an effort to pull us away from the Lord. And it is God who defines categories such as goodness and justice and fairness. Okay? Because I have, Randy has his definition of fair, and his definition of fair centers around whom? Centers around Randy. Okay. God's definition of fair does not take into account sin, because it's not t- tainted by sin. His definition of fair and right and just are all perfect. And we think, well, why can't I think that way? Well, because I'm tainted by sin and selfishness. And if it comes down to it, I'm going to want what Randy wants. And we also learn that God will bring into our lives those things which most and best glorify him. We look at Job's life, we looked at it briefly, and the Lord was most and best glorified in Job's trial and his demonstration of faithfulness. Yes, he asked the Lord some very hard questions. Yes, he wrestled with the Lord. He cried out and said, why are you doing this? And he had three friends who came along beside of him, and in the beginning they were good because they just came and they sat. Okay, and they were practicing the ministry of presence. They were there with him. And then after a while, they started to open their mouths and started on their own track of what was wrong with Job. Well, maybe it's your sin. Maybe you're just this or maybe you're just that. And Job cries out to the Lord, what is going on here? And remember, the Lord doesn't give him an answer to his question. 
and specifically, the Lord gives him a revelation of the mysteries of God and the majesty of God and a confirmation to Job that God is good. Now that's the answer to the question. We don't always like that answer because we want specifics. God is good. Now shape your understanding of your life relative to that. If you belong to him, he will bring into your life those things which most and best glorify him. So Asaph is not so much distressed by the sin of the successful as he is the success of the sinful. And he wants the Lord to answer this question, why is this happening? Why is this happening? We think of the prodigal son's brother, okay? Remember the story of the prodigal son. The, the, the son comes up and he's the younger son, says, Dad, I want my inheritance now uh, so I can go and enjoy it. And, and basically he is saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my money now. Now it doesn't say that, but it's not too hard to read into that. So his dad gives him the money, gives him his estate. And, and now, who does the rest of the estate belong to? Eventually, it's the older son who stays home, who works hard, who does what his dad wants. Prodigal son goes off, blows it all on fast cars and loose women. I don't know, whatever he, he did. And he comes back and he comes to his senses, I've sinned against whom? God and against my father. So he comes and his father restores him. And then the, the, older, the older son, his older brother, just sitting there scratch, scratching his head going, hey, I've been here all the time. I've been working hard. You never even sacrificed anything for me and my friends. So this is the same kind of question that Asaph is answering. Here's the guy who went off and blew a third of the estate on himself. And you welcome him back with open arms. And here I am trying to keep things going, doing what's right. And what do you do for me? That's Luke 15. You can read that later and get the answer. So remember the psalmist in Psalm 73. Look at verse 1. It's interesting because a lot of psalms do this. They begin with the answer. Okay? And then they go on to all these questions. Here's the answer. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Is that true? That's the answer to his questions. He, he comes with this statement and says... Here is what I know to be true, Lord. Here's the way you act. Here's the way you are. Now let me tell you my problem. And he goes on to list his problem. Okay? And his problem is his perception of the world around him. Look at, uh, let's just pick a couple. Look at verse 4. Okay? There are no pains in their death. Now this is one of those things. These are, these are Hebrew statements uh, that, that need a little bit of clarification if we're going to understand them. Stand them. Um, there are no pains in their death. It's not as if they die a painless death. But what, what he's saying here is that Satan has so clouded their eyes and so convinced them that there is no punishment for the wicked that they die happy. Okay, they die, this is good, death is just a part of life. Okay, we're going on, and whether there's something or not, I don't know, but life is good, and I have no fear of death. Spurgeon sums it up this way. They glide into eternity without a struggle. Think for a moment. If, you could, if, we, if we could put ourselves in this place, here you are as a non-believer, and you have lived your entire life with, without God, not, not acknowledging Him, and all of a sudden you begin to grasp that there is terrible 
eternal punishment waiting for those who are without Christ. And here you are sliding towards death. Now, now in our minds, we would immediately come to Christ. But let's say this guy doesn't, doesn't want to come to Christ. How would he go about as he gets closer and closer to death? Okay, It's like um, the cartoon where the guy's holding the rope and, and the other guy's off the edge and he's pulling him over and his heels are dug in and you know he's leaving this, this dirt all the way along. He doesn't want to go to death because death is terrible. These guys don't even comprehend that. It's like, hey, death is no big thing. Life has been good. Death will be just fine as well. And Asaph says, I was, I was envious of these people. I saw their prosperity and I was envious. The psalmist looks around and he's, he's envious of those whose hearts are not committed to Christ or to, to the Lord. He's envious of those who don't believe and trust in the true God. Why? They look like they got it going on in this world. They look like they're being blessed. They look like they've got gifts and talents and abundance, and it's making him crazy. Lord, I'm faithful. And what is happening to me? Whatever's happening to me is not as good as what's happening to them. And they're begging. They don't believe. They don't serve you. They don't trust you. How can God be said to be uniquely good to those who are committed to him when the wicked enjoy such blessings? This is what Asaph is struggling with. Well, Spurgeon gives an answer to that. He says, his eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw their present and forgot their future. Saw their outward display and overlooked their soul's discomfort. Who envies the bullock his fat when he thinks on the slaughter to come? I love that. Okay, boy, isn't that a good looking steer? Man, look how good he looks. Okay, and all the, all the while we, we kind of are envious of that steer until we see that he's getting on the truck to go down to the slaughterhouse. Okay? Mm. And that's what Spurgeon is saying. We're envious of the bullock his fat until we realize he's on the way to the slaughterhouse. Yet some poor afflicted saint has been sorely tempted to grudge the ungodly sinner his temporary plenty. Socrates was asked a question along these lines. He said, he was asked, what would cause the most anguish to good men? And Socrates said, the prosperity of the bad. Well, now the psalmist, in his purpose, is not speaking doctrine. He's not speaking theological truth here. He's wrestling with God. He is wrestling with the world around him, and he's asking God these hard questions. And that, again, this is one of the great things about the Psalms. Because there is, where are you? What are you wrestling with in life? There's a Psalm where somebody else is wrestling with that as well. Where they are asking the Lord hard questions about, you know, why is my life this way? Why are the people around me this way? Why do I seem to be struggling? Okay, those questions are there. But he's telling us how he's wrestling with these his eye is focused on the prosperity of the wicked, but he didn't see the troubles that they had. Okay? It's almost like, okay, I want you to come over to my house for dinner on Thursday. What, what am I going to do before you get there? I'm going to get the vacuum out. I'm going to dust. I'm going to clean. Or Judy is, okay. Okay, and the house, you're going to walk in the house and it's going to look great okay and you're going to think to yourself man randy and judy are really neat 
You know, they're, they're all fastidious. This is great. And, but you don't see the rest of the week and the chaos that goes on in the house. The chaos was worse when the girls were little, okay? <laughs> There's not so much now. But you understand, Asaph is only getting a glimpse of the prosperity of the wicked. He doesn't understand their hearts. He doesn't understand the struggles that they go through or the troubles that they have or the miserable deaths that await them. He projects onto them this greatness, this fatness. He's talking out of envy. He's speaking with feelings and thinkings that are, that are out of focus upon what's right. Okay? And, and this wrestling that he's having here in these verses, this is causing a, a, a turmoil, a, 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 an experiential problem in his heart when it comes to his understanding of God. He is measuring the goodness of God according to the prosperity of the wicked. He's measuring the goodness of God by the material success of non-believers and their apparent happy circumstances. Oh, they look so happy. They, they look like they don't have a care in the world. Okay? But when we judge God according to our own perceptions, that is a mistake. And how many of us have done this kind of thing throughout our lives? How many of us have, have judged what is right and what is good through the experiences of others. Let's, let's take a couple examples. Uh, you have an elementary school student who, who hears how much fun their friends are having skipping class. Okay? And they're wondering why the teacher has it out for them. And maybe I should go skip class and have a lot of fun with my friends rather than sit here with the teacher who's out to get me. Or maybe you've got the high school girl who hears her friends talk about the great time that they're all having at these wild parties and you see their lives and, and the boys are paying them a lot of attention and they seem to be getting everything they want. While she remains faithful to what her parents taught her, what she heard in church, what she reads in her Bible, all the while she's lonely. How do we balance these things? The college student who spends his time studying and he sees his friends joining fraternities. We didn't have fraternities at my college. So I really don't know what goes on in them, okay? I'm just making an assumption, okay? And, and it looks like it's way more exciting than the life he is leading, studying in his room. Well, the woman who remains in a very difficult marriage because she knows it's wrong to divorce simply because she's unhappy. While her divorced friends all seem carefree and all seem to be encouraging her to get out of something and, and so that she will be happy. She deserves better, but she stays. I mean, let's face it, sometimes sin looks a lot more fun and a lot easier life than righteousness and conforming our lives to Christ. Sometimes it looks that way. Envying the wicked puts us in a precarious spot. I mean, think of how many people have compromised uh, what they hold true in the things of Scripture in an attempt to keep pace with the world around them. Too, too easily we begin to suspect that righteousness is less rewarding than unrighteousness. Over and over we rehearse these, these things in our lives and, and, and always the problem with, with self-talk, that talk that goes in. We ask ourselves questions. Wouldn't, Randy, wouldn't you be happier doing this? And, and what's the problem with that? We come up with the wrong answer because it's the answer we want, not necessarily the answer that is correct. We should look at the Word and say, Lord... My heart is here, but I know what your word says. Help me to understand. Let's look a couple more 
verses down. Go to six. Therefore, pride is their necklace, their garment. Um, uh, that, that, would be a, that was a way of showing your wealth by wearing a necklace, um, much like it would be wearing fine clothes or things like that. So their pride is their necklace. They wear it out. I mean, they're not ashamed of their pride. They're happy with it. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against heaven. Their tongue parades through the earth. The prosperity of the wicked. Let's look for a moment at that word in verse 3. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now some of this is a little bit, it's just Hebrew uh, language stuff, so uh, I'll try to boil it down to the, the most important things. That word prosperity is shalom. Most of us understand that word shalom. We've heard it before. We understand that is often used as a greeting, a hello, and a goodbye. Uh, typically it means peace, but it means far more than just peace. The root meaning of shalom was completion or fulfillment. As I said, quite often it's used in the sense of peace as cessation of war, but shalom implies holiness and harmony, not just the absence of hostility. So it's something that is really with inside of us. It was thus used to describe good relationships. Shalom is often used for physical, physical well-being and good health. So it's in that context that became used as a greeting of hello and goodbye, like Lord bless you, shalom, something like that. Now, to Israel as a nation, Shalom summarized the benefits or blessings which were promised in God's covenant with Israel. That Shalom was particular to that covenant people. So it was a concept that the Lord would place upon them. He would give them Shalom. They would experience it. Now, it's often viewed primarily as God's material blessing, but that doesn't mean that's the only type of blessing it was. It's also this blessing of peace and comfort within. Because the priest in Numbers chapter 6 were told to give this blessing to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So from a theological aspect, we can kind of understand why Asaph is, is, is perplexed here. Because this peace, this prosperity was for God's covenant people who obeyed him, who did what they were supposed to do. Remember, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, what will the Lord do? He will care for them. He will bless them. He will heal their land. So no wonder Asaph is puzzled. Lord, I thought your, your shalom was for us. Now, Asaph is not an aesthetic. He's not anti-stuff. He's not anti-prosperity. But rather, he's upset with God's choice of who he is prospering. Okay? Not that he said, well, you know, to some degree, he's, he's asking two questions. He's got suffering, so he says, why me, Lord? And he's looking at the wicked, and he's seeing their prosperity and saying, why them? So in a sense, he's saying, why am I suffering? And those who are outside the covenant, who, who don't believe, Lord, why are they prospering? I mean, he, he has nothing in today's world against driving a Rolls Royce. He just wants to be the driver. Okay? He just wants to, he wants to be the one in the car. 
So the pride of the wicked is, is on display here. So it's just, we have to understand. In, in Asaph's understanding of what God would do and how God would bless, there came, blessing was a, res, a result of obedience and those material blessings were much more of a stewardship issue. The Lord was entrusting you with these things. Because you are obedient, you've shown that you can be trusted, so you're going to get more. We see that played out in the New Testament with the uh, parable of the talents, right? Um, the, the guy goes away, he gives five to this one, three to this one, one to this one. Guy has five, makes ten. Great. Guy has three, makes six. Guy has one, buries it in the backyard. So what he's given is even taken away from him. So the pride of the wicked is not merely reflected in their attitudes and actions, but the wicked even become so bold as to think they've done it themselves and put them in the place of God. Now, who are the wicked? Well, the people that Asaph is referring to as the wicked, they're Israelites. They're Israelites. Now, so Rand, you said all these were for the covenant people. Remember, Abraham says, it said about Abraham, not all who claim to be children of Abraham are children of Abraham. So here you have Israelites, part of the covenant people who don't believe in the Lord. Oh, they come to the temple and they go through the motions, but they don't have any belief in their life. They are more concerned with obtaining wealth, not in using it for the glory of our Heavenly Father. So you can imagine Asaph's struggle. Now let's, let's put him in this congregation, okay? Just remote. Here's Asaph sitting up here. And, and Asaph is, is working, his, working hard. And, and you know, he's, he's got a suit. He's got, only got one suit. Um, and it's got some tatters on it. And he lives in, in a little house and he rides his bike to church. Um, but he's the choir director and he's just working hard for the Lord. And he looks out in the congregation, this hypothetical congregation, obviously. And, and he sees all these people and they got their necklaces on and their clothes on and they're just dressed to the nines. And, and he says, here I am serving the Lord. And you've got all these people out here whose hearts are not in tune with the Lord and they're being blessed. What's going on? What's going on? Well, nowhere to deal with Asaph, nowhere in the Old Testament does it teach that material prosperity is an inevitable result of righteousness. It just doesn't say that. Adversity is a tool God freely used in the Old Testament and he freely uses today. Now, if we made a quick survey and a list, we could say how many of us have benefited from adversity in our lives? How many of us have grown in our understanding of what the Lord is doing because we've gone through some very difficult times? In the midst of the difficult times, we didn't like it, we didn't understand it, in fact, we hated it. But we can look back and see, well, Lord, now I see what you were doing. Now I understand why those things came into my life. Joseph was sold into slavery. Why? So eventually he could save his people. The people, the Israelites, 400 years in captivity, not as punishment, but as preparation that they might realize God's blessing. The difficulties Israel experienced in the wilderness were, in a sense, God's school of discipline to shape and to mold them, get them ready for the promised land. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those 40 years. Why? To humble you, to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. God has made it clear that if we belong to him, he will bring those things into our life that best and most glorify him. And that he is good. Let's pray. Lord, these things can be, can be tough because Asaph is crying out from his experience and he doesn't understand, but he knows you are good. And he knows that you bless those who belong to you. And Lord, we, we have these same issues in our life. Why are those pagans, those people who don't care anything for you, those people who may be doing and pursuing things that, detract from the kingdom how how can they be blessed here i am struggling to do best i can trying to be righteous and and i'm not getting the same results as they in this world remind us lord that there's far more than what we see in this world that blessing is defined by you justice and righteousness and peace are defined by you And you bestow them upon us. And it is our job to grasp those. And to conform our lives and our understanding to the way that you will work. Lord, these are hard things. Our hearts don't like them. We don't want to conform to those things. We want what we want because we like it. But yet here is your word. Here are your promises to those who belong to you. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. That we might understand these things. That we might live them. And live them to your glory and your honor and your praise. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.